Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm head gossip reporter Mike Emmel, and I am very excited to welcome our host for today's episode. Joining us today from the Best Pictures podcast is the man who definitely does not want to be a millionaire, Mr. Ian Bailey. Ian, welcome to Cinemusts. Hey Mike, thanks for having me. It's my great pleasure. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the Best Pictures podcast. You guys really speak to my obsession with the Oscars, which, um, (laughs) you know, now that we're out of the whole hullabaloo of this year's awards, like you guys are going back to the old stuff and I'm really enjoying it. Would you mind uh, plugging what you and Maggie are doing on the show? Yeah, of course. Glad to hear that you enjoy the show. Um, So my uh, friend Maggie and I are just watching through all of the Oscar Best Picture winners starting from Wings in the late 20s. Um, and we're working our way as quickly as we can up to modern day. So watch each movie, talk about it, and then end up uh, with a ranking at the end. So I think we're up through the mid-40s now with Gentleman's Agreement. Is that is that the show you just did or is that coming up? Uh, that's the one that I think we're releasing on the day that Mike and I are recording this. Um, so Excellent. I like March 9th. Uh, okay, yeah. So everybody queue up uh, Best Pictures Pod to listen to Gentleman's Agreement, a movie I have not actually seen. You know, definitely recommend it. And given that Green Book just won the Oscar, I think it's pretty relevant in how it treats uh, like marginalized groups and how they were affected by certain societal norms in the era. Interesting. So do you agree it deserves the Best Picture? Uh, Gentleman's Agreement or Green Book? <laughs> uh, no, uh, Gentleman's Agreement. We won't, we won't go into the Green Book thing. Um, I think that it ultimately, for its time, did deserve it. I definitely have some issues with it when taken through a modern lens. Um, but yeah, definitely tune in to, to hear those thoughts. Okay, I can't wait to win. And, and then just one thing to, I'm, I'm really trying to tease the show. What so far has been the, the number one Best Picture winner to you personally? So yeah, at the top of my list, um, it's All Quiet on the Western Front so far. And that's the uh, film adaptation of the novel. Um, which was set in World War I from the German perspective. So um, some really great cinematography, really interesting themes they dealt with, um, and all-around great movie. Yeah, really great movie. I'm excited. We will be able to talk about it on our show because it's also in 1001 Movies, but might be a while before we get to it. So anybody who wants to hear about All Quiet on the Western Front, make sure you go visit the Best Pictures podcast with Ian and Maggie. It is a absolutely fantastic show. Yeah, I'm happy overall. If you want to find us on social media at Best Pictures Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And again, um, as with Cinemusts on any of your favorite podcast platforms. So Ian, for, because I love Best Pictures Pod so much, I'm so excited to welcome you onto the show. And we are also so pleased that all of you listening could come. We are glad to have you here and we hope that you enjoy the show. And if you do, you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemus.com. You can also find the episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. And for daily updates on show content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. You just need to search for Cinemusts. So Ian, today you and I are here to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. But to do that, we are going to need the help of everybody listening, as two people alone can obviously not decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. To build that essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at cinemas.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Ian, would you be so kind as to define those categories? Absolutely. So, Cinemust is a movie that we'd recommend to anyone. And so, regardless of background, experience with film, anything like that, we believe it's going to speak to a really wide audience and is worth your time. Cinetrust is one where 
maybe it has some flaws or maybe it deals with some themes that not everybody is going to enjoy, but there is a subset of friends, family, whoever, that would enjoy the film. Cinebust is a movie that we would really recommend to no one and not really worth your time. Yep, absolutely perfect. And if that was all a little too much too fast, before we offer our take on which of those categories we believe today's films belong in, we first need to reveal which category our listeners decided last episode's movies deserved. Did the nonlinear game changers Pulp Fiction and Memento obtain official must-see status? Let's find out right now. So to read in the results of last episode's poll, it's just me tonight. Adam St. John is unfortunately unable to make it, but we do wish him the very best along with his podcast, A Thousand and One by One, which we of course encourage everybody to listen to as it is our sibling podcast discussing films in the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. And although Adam is not here personally to read these results, I know that he's very excited about the way that they turned out because you, our listeners, have decided that both Pulp Fiction and Memento are cinema musts, movies that everybody must see. Pulp Fiction with a 72% Cinemust vote, and Memento still pulling through handily with 60%. So kind of close, um, a decent number of Cinetrust, 24% Cinetrust for Pulp Fiction, and 36% for Memento, which is honestly a little closer than Adam and I could have anticipated, which is totally fine because we got so many amazing comments on these movies explaining why people voted the way they did, which I would love to read off. We'll start with our Pulp Fiction comments, starting first with Instagram, from Filmstock, who said of Pulp Fiction, Everyone should see it because it revolutionized storytelling. It allowed for directors like Christopher Nolan to make movies with nonlinear stories. From Twitter, our friend Ryan Altieri said, Everyone should see it because of its innovative, provocative storytelling style that provides audiences with a masterpiece crime drama that pioneered nonlinear storytelling and interwoven narratives that all intersect. Also on Twitter, Technicolor Blood said, Pulp Fiction spawned an entire genre, for better or worse, mostly worse. But on its own merit in the proper context of when it was released, it's fresh, innovative, rebellious, historic, all the superlatives. In my opinion, you have to watch all movies in the proper context of when they came out. Certainly not as fresh as it was back then, but still far better than all the movies it spawned. I'd call it an absolute must-see for movie fans, but especially filmmaking fans. Still from Twitter, we had Peterson Will, who said, They are both a must, but honestly, maybe because I've come to like some of his other work more, Pulp Fiction is a softer yes than it used to be for me. Still love it, I just respect some of his other stuff more. And our last comment from Twitter comes from Vince Corvea, who said, Pulp Fiction was enormously influential and pretty entertaining, but I always tell people I like movies that are smarter than I am. Memento is such a movie. I just need to feel challenged. My brain needs a workout. Memento gave my brain calisthenics. Not saying Pulp isn't brilliant, but it's a brilliant glorified genre film. My brain just sat back and had a nice time. And our next batch of comments all come from anonymous voters on our website's poll. We'll start with all of the Cinemust voters, one of which who said the reason they vote the movie is Cinemust. The story, the acting, the cinematography, everything. Another Cinemust voter said, This is a cinematic classic that should be seen. Another anonymous Cinemust voter said, Absolutely entertaining and fun with so many great and memorable characters. It's not going to be on the top of my personal list of greatest films ever, but it's an important film that had a notable effect on cinema, for better or worse. There's that better or worse seems to be coming up a lot. As well as the soft yes and Pulp Fiction not really being seen as Tarantino's best, as exemplified by an anonymous Cinetrust voter who said, I think that Inglorious Bastards is Tarantino's best movie and would want that represented on the list. And for dissension's sake. 
And the good news we would have for that voter is Inglorious Bastards is in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. We will be tackling it at some point in the future, and I am with him. I think it absolutely deserves a place on the list alongside of Pulp Fiction. Another Cinetrust voter in the poll said, Its disjointed storyline is going to throw off many who watch it, not for people who keep checking their phones. I guess I can't argue with the logic there, though I would argue that most movies aren't for people who keep checking their phones, but uh, I am also a realist and know that it happens, and Pulp Fiction is definitely one you could get lost in, so that's a good point by that voter. Our last comment comes from an anonymous Cinemust voter who said, If you don't know who Quentin Tarantino is, then this movie might not be for you. For me, it's one of Tarantino's best. And there are many who agree with that comment. About 72% of the voters actually agree with that comment. But I thought that that was a really good pool of differing opinions of people who like the movie, don't think it necessarily deserves to be on the list, those who gush over it. So it's cool to see that there's still uh, that much give and take with Pulp Fiction and that it's not just a self-evident masterpiece. So our apologies to all the Cinetrust and even Cinebust voters for Pulp Fiction. It didn't quite go your way, but we really appreciated your comments. All of those were very well thought out, show a great plethora of reactions to the movies and different takes, and that's what we're always going for in this comment section. Which we're only halfway through, we need to shift over to the Memento comments. Um, the first two of which I think are actually a lot of fun. Uh, we put out a post uh, following Adam and my discussion about the special edition Memento DVD with the notoriously hard menus. We asked if uh, anybody else had that DVD, if they had any stories with it, and we got two stories. Uh, the first one comes from our friend Chris at the Casual Cinecast on Instagram, who says, This may be my favorite DVD release of all time, except the menus are really hard to navigate. The other comment to that DVD comes from Instagram from Michael Yakuchuk. Sorry if we still can't say your last name right, Michael. We're really trying. We appreciate you chiming in on all of our posts. But Michael says of, of the DVD release, Let me tell you something. I first saw this movie when I bought this very DVD edition 12 years ago. Well, almost. I looked at the menu and thought it was so clever at first, but couldn't play the damn movie. So I thought I had the special features disc in, so I put in the other disc. Same menu, WTF. So I look at pictures online, and although the two discs in the set look very similar, they do look different, which mine did not have the difference. I did indeed possess an edition with two special features discs. Which I think is just a, another level of just frustration with that DVD. So that was indeed a very, very special edition that you had, Michael, and uh, we hope that you got that sorted out and were able to finally watch the movie. So those are our comments on the DVD release, but what about the movie itself? From Instagram, Filmstock comments, Everyone should see it because it's mind-bending. On Twitter, the Unlucky Ones pod says everyone should see it for some really cool tattoo ideas. Also from Twitter, Jasmine, who's at I sort of review it, says, It's a wild journey. I went in knowing literally nothing, and I think it's the best way to view this film. The first time I watched this, I was with a friend, and we paused it at one point to turn at each other and go, What the f***? And it was glorious. And I very much sympathize with that reaction. I still remember the first time I saw Memento and it definitely has that breaking point where everything starts to intersect. And that's really the only reaction I think you can have. So thanks, Jasmine. Also from Twitter, Kevin Brackett says, My first Nolan film. I've shown it to so many people over the years. Love the nonlinear storytelling. And Pierce is great in the role. Onto the website comments, an anonymous Cinetrust voter says, A little bit easier to decipher than Pulp, but its backwards approach is going to be difficult to many to fully embrace. Still, it has more mass appeal than Irreversible. And I'm kind of ashamed to say I have not seen Irreversible. I know there's some things in that movie that, uh, personally, I find very hard to watch, so I'm going to have to work up the courage to get around to it, but I do know it's on the list, especially since I love Memento. 
another anonymous Cinetrust voter says, I've never been as wowed by this film as others. It's quite good, but I don't know that I would consider it required viewing. It's been a while since I've seen it, but my overwhelming memory is that it leans more on concept than story. And our final anonymous Cinetrust voter said, Memento is a great film, but I think there are other Nolan films that are more significant that I would want recognized, either Inception or Dark Knight. And I have great news for that voter. We have done an episode on Inception. It was handily voted a cinema, so it is recognized on that list alongside Memento now. And uh, The Dark Knight will be the subject of a future episode. I would have my fingers crossed it makes the list as well. So there is room for all three of those on the list. And then just a few comments from some anonymous Cinemust voters, one of whom says, I can never name my favorite film, but this is always on my list. Another voter said, This is one of the movies that made me fall in love with movies. For that reason, it's a must-see. And the final Cinemust voter said, This movie was mind-blowing at the time and really set Nolan up as a great director. And I agree, it seems like the majority of our listeners agree, Memento, also a movie that everyone must see, the second Christopher Nolan film now included on the Essential Cinema list alongside Inception. And um, there's a couple more to go. I don't, like I mentioned, I know we have The Dark Knight. I think The Prestige might have been published in previous editions of the book. So he's a guy that I am definitely looking forward to discussing more of his filmography. Along with Tarantino, I thought this was a great matchup with some really beloved directors and really want to just thank everybody who took the time to vote and to leave their comments on the films. I know I say it every episode, but I love hearing the passion, the different reactions and takes on these movies. It really opens up the small discussion that we have on the podcast and helps us see the value of these movies in a brand new way that we hadn't even considered. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who cast your vote in that poll, which is now going to be closed. We are going to lock those results in, Pulp Fiction and Memento, both movies that everyone must see. So if you haven't seen one or either of them, make sure you get on it because your peers in the movie-loving community have decided you need to see them. So with that, we will put a bow on the Pulp Fiction and Memento episode. One last time, thank you so much, everybody, for casting your votes. And we hope that you will join us for the poll on this episode to decide if the two movies we are discussing tonight should also join that list of essential cinema. This new poll is going to be open until midnight on March 24th, so we hope if you haven't seen one or both of tonight's movies that you head out, give them a watch, and cast your vote to decide if they should join that essential cinema list. And I will not hold us up any longer. I am going to kick the episode proper back to Ian, who is going to introduce what tonight's two films are and why he chose them. So tonight's two films are The Philadelphia Story and High Society. So personally, I have a soft spot in my heart for The Philadelphia Story and really most of anything that Audrey Hepburn does. <laughs> Catherine so, Hepburn? Um, oh, oh there, please there, edit that there out There is for a me. war brewing. Second time. Oh, no. <laughs> but I have a soft spot in my heart for anything that Catherine Hepburn does. My apologies. Um, so really enjoy the film for my personal tastes. And High Society is the 1950s musical remake of The Philadelphia Story. So really work well together in a pair. So I'm really excited because uh, Philadelphia Story is a movie I like, but I don't have the same uh, connection to. I think I saw it too late. I think this is a kind of a family favorite among cinephiles and I was just a little too old. So I'm really excited to be talking to somebody who has uh, a big attachment to it. Definitely. Well, and it's Maggie who introduced me to it. So excellent. <laughs> that usually helps. Well, maybe me. we should get her on. Can you can you call her real quick? <laughs>
Well, um, let's let's not delay it then. Let's get rolling into the show proper. So for anyone who's never listened to us before, um, Ian and I are going to take a couple of minutes to go completely spoiler free. We are going to give some brief general impressions of both of these movies, try to give like a plot summary, basically try to sell these movies to anyone who's never seen them or never heard of them. And we are going to vote each one into one of the three categories that Ian defined, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and give three reasons apiece for why we vote that movie the way we did. And from there, we will issue a spoiler warning. We will talk about each movie one at a time to back up the things we said. Uh, So let's get rolling with it, and um, we'll be spoiler-free for a moment, so keep listening if you haven't seen the movies. Uh, But the Philadelphia Story, obviously being the original to High Society's remake, is the oldest movie, so let's start talking about it. Ian, what is the Philadelphia Story about? The Philadelphia Story follows socialite and heiress Tracy Lord on her path of self-discovery. So when some unexpected guests, including her ex-husband, show up before her wedding day, Tracy is forced to reckon with not only the tabloids, but her own principles and emotions. So Mike, uh, how did you vote for the Philadelphia story? Uh, Must, trust, or bust? Kind of regrettably, I'm actually going to go send a trust on the Philadelphia story. There's so much I like about it. We're going to have a pretty positive discussion, but overall, I don't think it's a movie I could recommend to everybody. Uh, But my three reasons why I think that way. uh, The first reason, probably the biggest reason I would recommend people see this movie is it's got three of the biggest Hollywood legends of all time sharing the screen. So that's not only just a plug for how it has Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart in the same movie. I feel like neither of them overpowers the other. Like, they work together so well, and none of them steals the show from the other two. And I think that is incredibly hard to pull off, especially with this level of superstardom. But then my other two reasons, you know, they're, they're kind of mixes of, like, positive and then things that kind of just keep me from recommending the movie to everybody. So the second the second reason is I think this is actually a pretty impressive adaptation from stage to screen that's still sometimes a little too stagey. Um, you know, especially when we get into old Hollywood movies are adaptations of stage plays. The Philadelphia Story is one such movie, and I think in some ways it does a lot to to get away from the stage elements to make it feel like a movie. But there's other times I think it it still kind of feels a little too theatrical. So. Uh, that could go either way. Some people might really dig that. Um, but for me, that's something that kind of keeps it from being a must. And my third reason is its messages on class distinctions and ideal womanhood are still challenging, but I don't think that they age too well. So that, that one's also kind of a mixed bag because most movies with um, messages like this don't age at all and they're not very challenging. They're very like surface level one note. And Philadelphia Story does make you think about things. But the conclusions I draw, uh, I still just kind of have a, a bad reaction to them. And maybe that's just me. I'm very excited to talk about them more when we get into spoilers. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I share some of those opinions uh, as well. So um, Ooh, so I'm excited now. I'm. How are you going to vote for this one, Ian? I'm, I'm feeling it's either a must, maybe a trust for you. And I don't think you're busting it, but make it official. How are you voting for Philadelphia Story? Oh, yeah, definitely not a bust. And it pains me to do this, but I also agree that it's a center trust. So I personally love this film and think really to go into my reasons, uh, the first being the outstanding performances by both the leading and supporting cast. So um, as Mike said, they had three of the biggest Hollywood stars in the show for the time, Um, but they also managed to get a supporting cast that really supported them throughout it and held their own. I also, for my second point, loved the snappy and comedic writing that in most places I think held up. So I believe some of the messaging, as Mike said, didn't. But in terms of the comedy, I, I think that aged pretty well. 
Um, I would agree. And then echoing Mike's point about the adaptation from stage, um, this is the one where I think it's up to individual tastes, as you said, Mike, um, that like it's very dialogue heavy at parts um, and that makes it feel made for stage um, from time to time. So definitely aligned with you on that. I feel, you know, not so confident. I'm kind of standing on a house of cards here because like we just said, a lot of these things that we're maybe not um, having the best reaction to, I think would be things that people would say, that's why the Philadelphia story is a true classic. Mm -hmm. It is because it's so witty, because it's so dialogue heavy. So your, your mileage may vary. So we don't mean this to discourage anybody from seeing the movie. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, yeah. So with Cinetrust, there comes that stigma. It's not a movie we recommend for everybody, but there is still a group, uh, a niche, whatever, that this movie is absolutely worth seeing. Who's the group of people you would recommend the Philadelphia story to, Ian? So uh, Catherine Hepburn fans definitely need to see this. So I, I think she really shines in her dialogue and her timing and her comedy. Um, and that is really what makes this movie a delight for me. And if, of course, you love films of this era, this is, I think, a very good, well-made example. Yeah, I, I would agree. That's actually probably the groups I would give to. It's definitely, I think, the ultimate Catherine Hepburn role. So if you're a fan of hers, uh, this is the one you definitely have to see. And um, for, for people who don't mind, you know, kind of just a slow burn, dialogue-heavy, kind of stagey movie, this is absolutely like one of the penultimate greats. Definitely agree. It's, I don't know, I almost see it kind of as a, not quite a character study, but kind of a character study with the different, uh, different characters in the film. Oh, absolutely. And even a character study of the people who play the characters in, a, in some way. We'll, we'll talk about that in spoilers, but this movie is very linked to Catherine Hepburn's public image. Yeah, which I was reading that this morning, and that was added some interesting context for me, especially. It does. So do not be discouraged just because we do not personally think that this is a movie everybody must see. I think we are still going to have many positive things to say when we move into spoilers. Definitely. Well, let's take a second just to talk about high society spoiler free. Um, so I've got the plot summary for that. And uh, I, it's an easy job for me because uh, what Ian said in the Philadelphia story plot summary, um, it's that. But it's a musical starring Grace Kelly, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. So Grace Kelly plays Tracy Lord. Bing Crosby, her ex-husband, C.K. Dexter, and Frank Sinatra as the reporter, Macaulay Mike Connor. Um, so that's a nice little bow that ties itself. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, uh, had, had you seen High Society before? I actually hadn't. And so I think, I want to say that I saw have seen a couple musicals of this era, but this was the first that I had seen as a remake, per se. <laughs> so that context definitely uh, colored my view of the film. Very fresh territory. Okay, so I'm I'm very interested to hear your reaction. How would you vote for High Society? So this was very clear to me that it was a cinebust. And okay. again, I struggle with whether or not I would have voted this way had the Philadelphia story not existed. Um, but we can get to that in spoilers more. But um, for my three points, uh, the first is really that the leads fall flat in their respective roles. And so whereas in the Philadelphia story, you had very well-matched uh, actors with their characters, in this, I just don't think the appropriate casting was there. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then second point, I because it is a remake, I believe that it should borrow some of the story and writing from the original, but this film simultaneously borrows too little and too much. So there are certain motifs that you see in the Philadelphia story that work really well, but because of lack of context in high society, it doesn't work in my opinion. 
And then, as Mike said, for uh, the Philadelphia story, some of the messaging on class and womanhood, for me, that was even worse in high society being a film that was made 15 years after the Philadelphia story. So those antiquated messages and musings on relationships just really are not aging well. Okay. And so, Mike, I'm very curious to hear how you also voted on this. So this is my second time seeing High Society. I was introduced to it through 1001 Movies, the book, um, because it's a remake of Philadelphia story. And oh my gosh, it has Grace Kelly in it. I am there. (laughs) I... I'm also going to vote this a Cinna bust. I do not recommend this movie to anybody. Um, I don't like it very much, actually. I (laughs) didn't like it the first time I saw it. I thought, maybe it was living too much in the shadow of Philadelphia story. I'll try really hard this second time to see it for the movie that it is. And um, I still really don't like it. (laughs) um, I I think I could actually just mirror everything you said. The I'll give my three reasons and then offer some comments on yours. But um, yeah, my first reason, I think this story is incredibly sloppy and scattered. It does not feel as tight as the same material that's handled in Philadelphia Story. Um, my second reason, you know, the big reason this movie is in the book, I feel, is it's a musical. Let's take this beloved story. Let's add some musical numbers. It's something different. My second reason it's as a sin of bust is the musical numbers stop the movie cold. They are not integrated well into this movie at all, and they're not even that good, in yeah. my opinion. Uh, we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about those uh, individually, I think. But um, I was going to say, I think the biggest note I had for this film was pacing, and that's exactly as you just put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then my third reason, I think the cinematography here is so stiff and uninteresting. And we, we have talked about a fair number of musicals on this show already. It's, it's kind of impressive how many we've done for being around only for a year. I can't believe a musical like this is so just by the numbers and has such an uninteresting look. I think it is the worst shot musical we've covered so far on the show. Wow, that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, overall, I'm not a fan. I, I could equally add on to that list. I'm with you that um, if the Philadelphia stories messages don't quite age well for me i at least appreciate that there's some sophistication and you have to do some thinking to at least arrive to that conclusion with high society i'm with you they they are just on the surface incredibly problematic they don't age well at all um which is surprising as you said because it's actually a more modern movie than philadelphia story is well i feel like the 50s (laughs) culturally maybe not as modern as we would have hoped but (laughs) sure but but a lot of great movies have uh have aged well in that regard from the 50s like um definitely we uh, we you know we won't get off there we we will talk about them on the show eventually but this unfortunately isn't one of them yeah overall i'm I'm not a fan of the movie i don't really recommend anybody see it um i guess i don't say that i hate it but there's definitely nothing in it for me oh i'm with you on that <laughs> i i know i know i've i've listened around a lot of people have good memories of this. They think it's, it's charming. And if they see that, then, you know, that's maybe a problem with me. I'm not seeing a lot of the charm here to me. Everything is is just a shallow imitation. So I I definitely agree that it stands in the, or sits in the shadow of uh, the Philadelphia story, but I could see how someone could in isolation, look at a musical number and see some charm there. Cause being Crosby is just so charming, just being there, but yeah, as a whole, it doesn't work for me. We will talk a lot about it. We'll, we'll save all of this for, for spoilers. I have a, a very big question about um, you know, the relationship between the two and if high society would work better a little more isolated, but we oh. will talk about that in spoilers. 
But before we do that, is, is there anything you would like to say in defense of either movie just before we move into spoilers to, to help get people interested? Ooh, let me think. <laughs> maybe be hard to do for high society. We just took a minute to totally dump on it, but maybe that would help. Maybe people, th- there is kind of that thing, like everyone says this is bad. I got to check this out. I mean, yeah, that's, if, if you're looking for something that you can potentially mock a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like high society gives you that opportunity, especially in some scenes that comment on the quote high cost of being rich oh, oh boy yes. <laughs> so um definitely some opportunities there but i uh, i would not watch it in a serious mindset okay bummer how about for philadelphia story now for philadelphia story again as much as it pains me to say it's a trust i do think it's worth folks time overall but again, if you're not a old 1940s era movie fan, uh, probably not something that you're going to enjoy, especially from like a pacing perspective. But again, yeah. I personally love live theater, and that's uh, one of the things that I love to go to uh, over where I live. Um, and so really works for me in that. So if you love theater, definitely think this is a worthwhile watch. Okay. And, and Ian, I want to know, I think you have a very distinct honor because I believe uh, this is episode 36. In 36 episodes, I think this is the first time that neither movie we've covered has received a must vote from either host. Oh, no. I don't know if that's a uh, good <laughs> thing or a bad thing. <laughs> well, it would be a bad thing if we were negative. But like you say, Philadelphia Story is not a negative thing. It is more, as you say, there are movies from the 30s and 40s that I think are a lot easier to push and sell to everybody because there is... The older a movie is, the harder it is to get people to want to see it. And definitely, um, I think Philadelphia Story for me runs a little bit middle of the pack, but you know those those are slight you know point deductions, um, not necessarily like big blows that say like a lot of the movie doesn't work because so much of the movie I think does work. Definitely agree. Well, let's let's try to talk those things up. So do not be discouraged, everybody. Um, please still check out the Philadelphia story if you are into older movies, as Ian and I have talked about. If you don't mind the pacing issues, we think it's very much worth seeing. And hey, still check out High Society. We want you to have your own opinions. At the end of the episode, we're turning it over to you to decide if these movies are going to be considered must-sees. So you don't have to just take our word for it. Right. But um, if there's nothing else to say, then let's uh, let's get out of the surface level. Let's dive a little deeper and go into spoilers for the Philadelphia story. Snob. What do you mean, snob? You're the worst kind there is, an intellectual snob. You made up your mind awfully young, it seems to me. Well, 30's about time to make up your mind. And I'm nothing of the sort, not Mr. Connor. The time to make up your mind about people is never. <laughs> Yes, you are. And a complete one. You're quite a girl, aren't you? You think? Yeah, I know. Thank you, Professor. I don't think I'm exceptional. Uh, you are, then. I know any number like me. You ought to get around more. Yes. Not in the upper class. No, 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 thank you. You're just a mass of prejudices, aren't you? You're so much thought and so little feeling, Professor. I am, am I? Yes, you am, are you? Your intolerance infuriates me. I should think that of all people, a writer would need tolerance. The fact is, you'll never, you can't be a first-rate writer or a first-rate human being until you've learned to have some small regard for human fra- Aren't the 
Geraniums. Pretty, Professor. <laughs> Okay, Ian, we, we share a lot of points about um, the Philadelphia story being a movie that is worthwhile, especially for classic movie fans, but I think the big one we've got to lead with is kind of the obvious one. We both called out three of the biggest stars of the classic Hollywood age are all in this movie together, and um, I think we should just break them down, talk about how they share the screen and why that is a penultimate reason why this movie is worth checking out. Definitely. So, uh, again, starring Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, and Catherine Hepburn um, in three of the leading roles there. And I think for me, with them sharing the screen, they tend to play off of each other really, really, really well, even from the get-go. So the very first scene, while I am kind of get that ick factor with the fact that Cary Grant's character Dexter um, like literally shoves down Tracy. Yeah, Um, very forceful. Exactly. Um, They have some really good physical comedy there and are matching each other's energy in a way that I think really works. Yeah, there's there's a slight little moment in that that I really like because I agree it's that moment is is made for a laugh. But in this day and age, it's really hard to laugh at it because he shoves her down like pretty hard and quick. After feigning a punch, too. So. Yeah. Well, well, that's what <laughs> I was like, going to say. There, there is still this, this little moment in that where um, she's broken the golf club over her knee and marched back to the house. He marches back to the door, and he looks like he's going to punch her, and he holds back. And right before he you know, shoves her to the ground, Catherine Hepburn just like lifts her chin high in the air and gives like that little smirk, like, I knew you couldn't do it. And I really love that moment. <laughs> and I'm not saying it justifies him you know, laying into domestic abuse, but, you know, there... This is the screwball comedy formula, right? It's it's a battle of the sexes. And in right, right from that moment, you feel like you're saying how evenly matched these two are. And in a, in a weird way, it also sets up like, well, these two are perfect for each other. They just don't realize <laughs> it yet. Yeah. And that, that little act of defiance from Tracy, I think, really is representative of how she is in the film as a whole. Oh, yeah. It's, it's actually a really good bit to set up her character. Um, which which she is the main character, so we should probably you know break down her performance, the messages that surround it, and then we can kind of uh, circle out to the other performers. So you are a gigantic Catherine Hepburn fan, um, and I I kind of went hyperbolic and said I think if you are a Catherine Hepburn fan, this is probably like the ultimate Hepburn role. Do you think I'm I'm going a little overboard with that? Absolutely not. And this was actually a role that Catherine Hepburn did on stage in the stage version of the Philadelphia story, which was a wild success uh, on based on my understanding. Um, and so this was designed for her as her movie comeback, because I know that folks, uh, she was basically considered box office poison <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. until this point. Um, and so I think that the writing and especially the rapid fire dialogue that she is given um, is just exemplary of the sort of performance that you can expect from her. And, and that's what I think is so interesting about the, the movie and the play is that the play, Catherine Hepburn herself is an inspiration for the character of Tracy Lord, that people saw her as kind of highfalutin, a little bossy, not necessarily like the ideal woman. Um, and, and I've heard a lot of people say that a part of the Philadelphia story's success is 
getting to see her taken down a peg or two because a, a big oh. a big section in the middle of the movie is this nonstop gauntlet of like every other character just railing on Tracy and talking about everything that's wrong with her. I think you know, yeah. it's, it's like Dexter, it's her dad. I think George does it like three guys in a row are just like, you kind of suck. <laughs> yeah. And I think that shouldn't be overlooked because I, I, Schadenfreude is a really like really real thing. And I, I think, I don't know, uh, in this day and age, I'm sure that audiences uh, would have enjoyed seeing an actor that they didn't like getting torn apart <laughs> sure so not to project too much on the audiences of the 40s but i'm i'm pretty confident that that hasn't changed in 50 60 70 years <laughs> yeah yeah i was gonna say i i would be so bold as to say there's probably a couple of actors uh, today that we would be completely fine if there was just a movie <laughs> just tearing them to shreds i don't think a lot has changed um but but with that you know i i don't want to rag on the movie too much because with you know taking her down a peg or two the movie is also very much about like stripping away the facade and showing that this woman is a real person with thoughts and feelings and insecurities and it does that you know not only because the character is super rich which is a pretty big leap to make in 1940 because mm -hmm. we're, we're not in the most horrible throes of the great depression but i still think it's pretty gutsy that you know a movie about living the high life with rich folk uh takes off as a major success <laughs> well i'm curious how much of that is uh like voyeurism to a point oh um, sure like hey let's let's look at this fantasy world because real world isn't all that great right now so some escapism i guess yeah and, and you know it's it's handled so surface level because of the, the major plot point is we have jimmy stewart and ruth hussey coming in as reporters they are reporters of the people and they are going to guide us through this lavish world that has a south parlor and you know the the gifts room and the the swimming pool and stuff <laughs> and so you know in a way i also think that's a way that it opens up from the stage plays that we're not just seeing like the one room of this mansion you kind of get like an entire tour of the estate and i think that's one thing that really helps the movie succeed and feel more movie like yeah definitely agree there so i guess pivoting on to well was there more with Catherine that you wanted to discuss mike let's just talk about her performance for a second because we have those two things going on right that a part of the appeal is taking her down a peg but also the flip side of that is showing her as a real person do, do you feel that the movie has a good balance of that do you think it leans like too heavily one way or the other so I kind of view the movie in two parts in that. So you mentioned the long sequence in the middle of the film where Tracy is taken down and down oh, and down oh, by yeah. everybody that she met. So um, I guess in the first half, I really do see her leaning into this aloof, eccentric and really separate kind of persona that she's trying to to put on. And it also helps that she has this really aristocratic affect in her voice <laughs> oh yeah yeah um and so that that's i think definitely showing her in that high society role not to you know reference the next film but <laughs> <laughs> then after that I, I with her downfall that's where especially once she decides to get drunk after being ragged on for 20 minutes straight <laughs> and who could blame um, her i i don't blame her that's where i really enjoyed seeing how much she was a person and how much she just wanted to be loved by the people around her and accepted for who she was beyond just this facade of perfection and the goddess that people refer to her as. Mm -hmm. 
And so that, that for me, I really enjoyed seeing her, Catherine Hepburn's performance kind of spiral to that point with Jimmy Stewart after the, the engagement party or the, as she put it, bachelor party, I think. Um, that might be high society. I don't that, remember. It's so hard. They start to bleed together. <laughs> they really do. But after uh, whatever pre-wedding party that yeah. her uncle throws. Yeah, Uncle Willie's big ball. I guess my last thing to say on Catherine, I, I'm, I'm not a huge Catherine Hepburn fan. Um, don't hate me. <laughs> no, but you're good. I got to tell you, I really love everything that Catherine Hepburn represents, especially in the era in which she achieved superstardom, which, which comes through in the character of Tracy. She's a strong, authoritative, intelligent woman. She is often incredibly easy to cheer for. And this movie, you know, takes place in a society where the surface is what's valued. It's, it's manners, it's politeness, it's reputation. And in that society where that's what's valued, she manages to be so much more than just a pretty face. And the fact that she does so very defiantly is so admirable. And I think it's one of the things that works best about her performance. And that's also kind of what works best about her real life. And, you know, that mm-hmm. people say that sometimes goes too far, that she isn't just defiant and powerful. She's also snobby and difficult to work with. But, you know, as as the movie points out, we're all just human. And, um, yeah, so I love the way that she manages to still embody a character. She's not just playing Catherine Hepburn, but the character is so infused with, you know, what the public thought of her and, and in a way how we still think of her today, because I think you know, a lot of people would say if you could name just one uber popular classic film actress, I think most people would name Katherine Hepburn. At least one of the Hepburns. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say Audrey. I'm I'm Team Audrey, but um, you know, I I really do admire everything that Katherine Hepburn stands for. And uh, again, if if you're in, if you're into her, this is the movie you absolutely have to see. Absolutely. Um, so yes. Uh, well, I was gonna say one. Uh, I guess pivot on to uh i'm debating whether jimmy would work first or uh ck dexter haven <laughs> well i think i think jimmy first because um this is the only role james stewart won uh, an acting oscar for he won best leading actor and it really is his movie if it's not tracy's so he's in the lead male performance so we should move over to him i think Sounds good. So, um, which I am an unabashed Jimmy Stewart fan. Um, so I'm all about to gush all over this. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I I think he did a. This movie seemed at least for Jimmy and Catherine at like quintessential and representative performances for them. So, um, with Jimmy Stewart's character, I I loved the introduction that we had with him and um, Liz Embry like on this sequence with them walking to the editor's office. So he's going off on his kind of goofy, self-righteous rant that he does so well. Yes. <laughs> um, and trying to be all principled. And then uh, Liz is just kind of holding him back at every step with the um, just that line. Um, which I really, really enjoyed how they were able to, to play off one another. But there, and especially once they're in the house uh, and faced with the facade of both Dinah and Tracy's over-the-top representative performance of like, oh, the the home life that's going to make their hair stand on end. <laughs> um, so th- the way that he's expressing his like shock and it's almost like he's indignant um, when he's delivering a line about who's interviewing who, I just thought he did that fantastically. Yeah. And 
that was representative again. I think all of the characters kind of went through this first half, back half of the movie transformation. And so this was where we saw the really snarky side of Jimmy Stewart. And then after the library scene, we get to see more of the sweet and caring side where he's trying to build up uh, Tracy's uh, as she's becoming beginning to doubt herself. And so she, Catherine and Jimmy, I think, again, as with all three of the leads, played really well off of each other in that entire sequence after uh, the uncle's pre-wedding party. It's a blast. And I, I think Mike's transformation is my absolute favorite just because, as you say, in, in a movie that's about the snobbishness of high society, um, he manages to be like the most uptight character in the movie. As you say, he's so <laughs> he's so indignant and quick to be judgmental of the upper class yes. and their privileges. Um, but he, you know, it's, it doesn't take a lot to push him. One of my favorite um, kind of running gags is how quickly he will fawn over a member of the upper class as soon as they say they know about his book or have his book. Like they don't even have to say like they like it or they've read it. Like as soon as he knows like they're aware of it, he's just he'll instantly just be on their side. And it is it is so fun that after Uncle Willie's party and the night of heavy drinking, he's the only one that's still carrying the feeling. Everybody else kind of wakes up with that awful hangover and uh, the jokes about the sunlight and the noise are fantastic. But, you know, Jimmy Stewart's the only one who's still like, yes, darling, what is it? Whatever you want. <laughs> like he gets so sucked <laughs> into the world that at the beginning of the movie, he, he protested too much against. Oh my gosh. And that to, I guess, backtrack a little bit to that scene where they're first in the South Parlor. I just loved all of the digs that he had against the Lord family and <laughs> especially him crank calling uh, Mother Lord. <laughs> <laughs> the voice of doom. Exactly. And that, that whole sequence, I, again, loved it. was hilarious to me. And a perfect example of, I guess, to get a little bit ahead of myself, but some of the writing and comedy that, again, really held, holds up. Oh, yeah. No, his, his delivery is great. And it, it's also fun to see sarcastic Jimmy Stewart. I, I talked about this in our It's a Wonderful Life episode that we see Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart as just the aw shucks guy. Um, so it's really fun here, like you say, in the first half of the movie to see him just be this really overly bitter, sarcastic dude. It's <laughs> just prank calling the rich aristocracy. And, and I think this movie in a time capsule way is very interesting because I don't think it's very long after this that Jimmy Stewart goes off uh, to serve in World War II and film oh, critics have said there's a very there's a very distinct line after he gets back you know he starts doing things a lot differently so this movie I think um Janine Basinger who gives the audio commentary on Criterion's Blu-ray she talks about how Jimmy Stewart has a kind of lightness about him that doesn't come in later roles something about the war changed him no brainer right um yeah so that's this actually really interesting because I am I guess exposing some of my ignorance did not realize there was that like dichotomy in in Jimmy Stewart's career. Yeah, and and you know I don't I don't know that I see the line as distinctly as other people do. Like it's a wonderful life comes post World War II, and that's you know our our iconic image of of Jimmy Stewart. But as I said in that episode, there's a lot of darkness and struggle in that movie that I don't think we talk about enough. And here. I don't feel like there there is a lot of that darkness, like because he he is kind of a fool figure. He is the one who, just like the rich, blah, maybe we should go to the servants' quarters. And by the yeah. end, he's just fawning over Tracy, and he loves her. He will do anything. He will marry her on a whim, even though he has never asked a woman to marry him before in his life. <laughs> so yeah, it's I think it's it's a great 
performance from him. He's he's a good drunk, but maybe we should segue that into a when we talk about dialogue or maybe even Cary Grant. Definitely. So um I think with Cary Grant's performance, um, especially with the role of C.K. Dexter Haven, there really has to be an edge to it. And that's something that I think Cary brought to that role. And again, it starts with the questionable domestic violence thing in the very <laughs> right. beginning. Um, but a, he, a thing only Cary Grant could get away with and still have us like him. Yeah. Um, his delivery is snarky and he knows how, or at least makes us believe that he knows how to manipulate Tracy. Um, and especially with some of his delivery of the withering glance of the goddess um, and things like that, it's just so biting mm. that I loved it. And that was so important for Tracy's transformation that like, he's playing a key role in that, for me at least. A thing I like about um, Dexter, and, and Janine Basinger also points this out in the commentary, he's a supporting role. It's really not his movie. So Cary Grant is doing a lot of work and heavy lifting to you know, put himself on the same level as Catherine Hepburn and James Stewart. Mm -hmm. um, a thing I love about his performance is it's the one that you have to analyze the most because what his angle is, is not always clear. Because the first time you watch the movie, you think... He's just still in love with Tracy. He is going to use this as a way to get back into the estate and get her to call off the wedding and marry him. But I think the more times I watch it, the more I see that he really is just trying to save the family's reputation. I think a lot of the, the biting lines, as you say, that he delivers to her are a little too mean for me to buy that he's there to win her over. I think he, in the beginning, is not happy that he has to be back here, but he does want to save the family's reputation and mm -hmm. not let this story about Tracy's father get out. But, you know, as, as the events go on, and as, like this true screwball comedy formula, as they, they keep butting heads, they both realize, like, oh, we, we were good together. She, she really is the <laughs> yeah. girl for me. And I, I like that, you know, he has a transformation, too, that uh, amidst all the fighting and everything, he still realizes he still cares for her. And um, I think that as, you know, almost out of left field is that final... I guess you'd call it a proposal is I think it works so well in the movie. And it's one of the funnest things to see her call off the wedding with George, just to, to slide Cary Grant into the groom slot and have it work. Yeah, definitely. And so I think I push back a little bit on the, um, it was too biting and I, that's probably because of my personal experience. Um, so like all of my family, <laughs> one way that we express love for one another is by giving <laughs> each other copious amounts of crap. <laughs> okay. So I can, like, I, I can definitely relate to one of the truest forms of loving somebody is teasing them. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I mean, some of the stuff he says is it just beyond teasing. Like the, she needs trouble to mature her, give her lots of it. The, you know, the, see, the, the goddess speech like that is, oh, that is core speech, cutting yeah. stuff. Definitely agree with the goddess speech. I think I interpreted the trouble part a little bit more playfully just because, uh, oh shoot. What the, who is she marrying? Crap. George Kittridge. George, was, thank you. Yeah. So especially in the scene where they're talking about having to give Tracy a bunch of trouble, George plays such a straight character that I think that is really why it colored um, Cary Grant's lines is a little bit more playful for me. But hey, definitely open to interpretation. And again, in, in this lo like love triangle, it's kind of actually more of a love square. But, you know, Cary Grant <laughs> is the bad boy. 
And um, like we said, he's, he's the only guy who could get away with the opening scene, you know, shoving her to the floor and still have us feel like she needs to go with Cary Grant. She shouldn't pick these other two guys. Right, right. He this, this has almost nothing to do with the performance, but I think Cary Grant has my favorite joke in the movie when um, we have the Uncle Willie f- father lord switch up. And um, Tracy comes over to her dad and says, you have to pretend to be Uncle Willie because of the mess you've got us in. And as they're like ushering like the rest of the gang, like to the the porch or whatever for dinner, Cary Grant's in the back and he's just taller than everybody else. And he's smiling. And as he's being ushered off, he like gives this little flapping finger wave and he mouths hi, Willie, to Tracy's dad. (laughs) (laughs) I just love how he walks onto this estate and is just instantly in home. And everybody kind of just loves him, despite the fact it was this messy divorce. Like they pick his side over their own daughter's. (laughs) Well, and I think that speaks to how Tracy was characterized. So it's, again, the film is trying to set her up as like a really cold, exacting perfectionist that expects that and demands it from not only herself, but others. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's great to see Dexter be that foil for her, especially, as you said, in that that wonderful joke he had before lunch. Yeah, well, I think we should move on, but we'll we'll talk about these three again. But that's the main cast. Your your point is not just for these three, though. You say that this is a supporting cast that is not just supporting; that they really have a, a big stake in the story. Who are like your big winners in the supporting oh, cast? Dinah is absolutely my favorite <laughs> in this film. So she was um, played by Virginia Weidler, and. I think from the very beginning, she's one of the first characters that you get an introduction to, um, and you have this whole smallpox motif (laughs) that comes back in, um, that she just has some really great lines and really great delivery. And in the same scene in the South Parlor um, with Mike and Liz, she comes in on point in her ballet shoes and starts <laughs> rambling on in French with this crazy wedding gift necklace <laughs> and then sings the Oh Lydia song, which I, I just think was comedic gold. Oh, yeah. Um, so for me, I was so glad that she featured so prominently throughout the film and really spoke what was unsaid about wanting Dexter to be the person that Tracy was marrying. Yeah, very much like the voice of reason. And exactly and a great exactly. a great sibling rivalry too between them i love when she says like mother i'll choke her before saturday and she goes well that would postpone <laughs> the wedding wouldn't it it would not exactly <laughs> she's really and good I, she is loved her and i guess in that same vein too mother lord um i really enjoyed her dead it wasn't quite deadpan but it was very calm and collected in her performance. And so that contrast to kind of Catherine Hepburn's performance that was much bigger and over the top um, in some ways, like really did it for me because she just rolls with the punches and goes and provides this like calm forward looking force. um, Yeah. That ended up with some really good comedic uh, aspects to it, especially with the increasing the place settings at lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very much the polite face of high society. Just roll with everything. Always have a smile. We're so pleased to have you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and with her lines about, Oh, don't say stinks, darling. If absolutely necessary (laughs) smells (laughs) and maybe don't use sock because strike is quite nasty enough. Uh, Yes. I'm I'm a little bit misquoting, but that was the general idea. No, that's with the gist. Some no. of those things, and that's that's great wordplay and stuff. Um, and I want to get into wordplay, but I I need to give the shout out to Ruth Hussey as Liz. Oh, absolutely. 
who I think is actually my favorite character in the movie. I love Liz. <laughs> I, I think she strikes that perfect balance because she is a quip machine. She is made up of like 95% wit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she has like that element of Tracy Lord. She's smart. She's authoritative, but she's a realist. But she also, you know, isn't as uptight. You know, Liz, Liz is very forthcoming with her, with her weaknesses. And um, I just love every time she's on screen and every time she's just offering some kind of commentary on what's going on. It is always just split second precise <laughs> and biting. And I can't get enough of her. Oh, completely agree. She had the best, like, remarks even if they were a little bit superhuman for me i was willing to suspend belief because it was just so enjoyable but i loved i think my favorite line for her um, was when she and tracy had come to pick up uh, mike from dexter's house after the party and she talks about the 15 round fight with no decision (laughs) (laughs) so like that's that's like a perfect example of the sort of wit that she brought throughout the film that scene also has my favorite of her lines because I, I also love how you just feel the relationship between her and Mike and the affection she has. Mm-hmm. And when she comes in, you know, Dexter goes over to the car to see Tracy and she just goes, where's my squawking parakeet? I think, <laughs> yes. you know, that's that's a line to like kind of point out what a doofus he is. But there's also something very tender about it. And I love it. Yeah, he's he's a goof, but he's my goof. <laughs> yeah, I'm very I'm very glad they end up together at the end of the movie. I'd be very upset if Mike had gone off with Tracy because... Darn it, Liz. Liz deserves better, but if she could have somebody, I'm glad it's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> completely agree there. So about the the writing, your, your second point, this is a, a great movie, is it's got snappy comedic writing that still holds up. Definitely. So I think um, specifically the ones that I really, like the, the, there were a couple scenes that really sold it for me. And the, the first and primary one was I, I did mention this, but it's the scene uh, right after Dinah has left the South Parlor when Liz and Mike have first um, entered the Lord household. And so Tracy is there, and she again has this aristocratic affect and is rapid fire questioning both Liz and Mike. But the beautiful part here is that she will ask a question and let half an answer get out before she moves on to the next question. Yes. And so the writing here and even I'm I'm debating how much was writing and how much was delivery, which I I do throughout this film where I'm like, is it the writing or is it the acting? Which honestly, it's both. But the way that Tracy is able to just pivot seamlessly and quickly throughout this whole thing to keep Liz and Mike on edge is hilarious to me. And some of the the digs that she has about writers stooping so low um, as to write for a tabloid, like these are some withering, withering insults. And it, it's just so delicious for me to see that scene. Right. No, that's a great scene, especially all that and kind of pointing out the, the divide in classes, bringing up Mike's upbringing. It is, it is so good how she is ripping them to shreds and still somehow seeming charming about it. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, uh, that's, that's a great blend of, of, of fantastic writing and an amazing performance from Hepburn. And I know there were some other, um, like before that scene in the very first intro we get, well, not the very first, this is after the flashback, but um, when uh, Hepburn is talking to her mother and talking about, is he handsome? Is he perfect? The, that wonderful dialogue between those two. That was another like, Writing was good. Delivery was fantastic. And so I really saw these kind of continuing throughout the film. Um, and so that's, that's really what did it for me um, from a dialogue and writing perspective. 
And I like the more quippy stuff over the the overly romantic. I think those are the elements that get a little too much into that, like overly stagey theatrical stuff. You know, you know, J- Jimmy Stewart's speech to Catherine Hepburn is is touching, but you know, Heart Fires and Holocaust to oh, me yeah. is uh, is a little overboard. That is a little too too romantic. Completely agree. And that's I, Jimmy. I think from a delivery perspective plays into that stagey delivery from time to time especially in the night before the wedding stuff after the party but before the wedding um which hey i'm i'm okay with that (laughs) yeah again i think that this doesn't work necessarily for us all the way but i think a lot of people would say like this is the charm of the movie oh this is this is why it's a classic and so I, I want to be clear that that definitely works for me. I just understand it's not everybody's cup of tea. Sure. It, it, I'll, I'll stand by. I'm not as cultured as you. It doesn't always work for me, but there's a lot. <laughs> there's even a lot of like the, the so-called like stagey scenes that I like a lot. Um, I, I think the one where Mike goes over to Dexter's drunk and they have the talk. I think that that plays just like the stage play would do it, but I actually really like it in the movie. And I think it's the glee of seeing you know Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart share a scene and just kind of work <laughs> things out but I think it's it's hysterical and I never really think about like how that's just ripped straight from a play you know single location and everything right uh be- because Jimmy Stewart's a fantastic drunk and um when he screams to the doorbell don't interrupt me in the middle of this story <laughs> it's, it's so good oh yeah and that the the acting in that scene in particular brought it brought it home for me and I think that was one that I definitely called out as being like dialogue heavy and kind of made for stage. But again, I'm here for it. And and there's there's so many others. I, I think the goddess speech, it, all of these, it's also not even that the, like the whole thing is bad. It's that I think it just goes on too long to make the point that they're, you know, you have such beautiful wordplay with um, the lines that Philip Berry wrote for the play, like that you have to get the best of it on there. But I think it slows the movie down. Like we've been at this poolside a little too long watching Cary Grant just tear Catherine Hepburn to shreds. Like maybe we could cut some of this back, but a lot of that is still a great scene. Mm-hmm. And that was, yes, another one there. And I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I feel like that scene was designed for us to really understand the full impact of how much Tracy was being torn down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, I'm willing to kind of give it some, some leeway there. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely stage-like. And that scene, I think, lends itself to this, this third point I had that I think, you know, a lot of these messages are challenging, but they don't age well. So that's one tackling the ideal womanhood, you know, that, that Catherine Hepburn does not represent ideal womanhood because she wears pants. She's strong, authoritative. <laughs> um, yet, you know, the, the movie has a scene where her father excuses his affair as her fault because she's too unaffectionate oh and, you know it's, it's a completely facile argument that scene pisses um, me off every time i see it because i'm like no yeah. you're just a scumbag <laughs> and and you know and to a lesser degree the goddess scene is you know carrie grant's being like yeah i drunk but you made me drink harder because i couldn't live up to your standards as you know i didn't want to be your high priestess to a virgin goddess it's you know yeah that was a little i like that we're i like that we're exposing that both both were at fault you know with that speech we're getting an idea of like what drove this marriage apart what led to the opening scene Um, but you know again some of the reasoning here is just like 
yeah, you know, I could see how she'd be a little bossy and intimidating, but are we really going to, like, blame everything on her? Right. Come on, guys. Well, and I think for the way the film was, I presume, designed to show her character arc, like, okay, great, this is going to be giving the message that she has some really bad character flaws that need fixing. And then Mm -hmm. for me, like, watching it through a more modern lens, it's kind of like... I feel for her not because she supposedly has flaws, but because those around her aren't being as supportive as I would hope <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I don't know if I'm projecting and being a bit modernist in my, uh, uh, or what, there's a word for that. What is it? Presentist. I don't know if I'm being mm-hmm. a little presentist in my reading of the the film but i definitely don't think tracy is anywhere near at fault like i don't really think tracy is as much as fault at fault as the film would like us to believe agreed but i do like that i i feel there is a balance here i don't feel that she is portrayed as overly a monster and it does things very subtly to do that you know she she will go to the public library to read Mike's book. You know, she mm-hmm. is not so hoity-toity that she won't just hang out in town all day. You know, she loves the stories. Um, I wish I wish there was like a little more interaction with, you know, the the townspeople, I guess you'd call them. Yeah. I don't know. That makes her sound like Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she she doesn't just live in her high castle in the Philadelphia story. And I, I think that helps for... You know, like you say, these messages don't necessarily age well, but they are still challenging. You do still have to kind of work through them. It's not just surface level. That's bullcrap, except for Seth Lord's speech. About, <laughs> yes. My my affair with my wife has nothing to do with her. I'm weak. <laughs> and then that segues into, but you know, if I had a better daughter, I might have been reminded I was young. Oh, and that assertion is so icky. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> like, it's, it's bad. Ooh, that... I can't really be on board with that. And I'm not on board with it in this film or in high society because they, they duplicate it. So yeah, that, that I do do. not like. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's a little black spot, but does not ruin the movie at all. Agreed. Agreed. But I think that kind of segues pretty well into the class distinctions part. If you're, you're game to move there, Mike. Yeah. That's the other, I think this is the other big idea this movie has that um, I don't find this one so problematic as I just, I guess hollow because tell me if I'm I'm wrong or missing something to me, this movie doesn't feel like it goes as deep into the divide between classes as it means to. Yeah, I can, I can kind of see that because it's really just Jimmy's transformation from being an intellectual snob and us seeing that arc is kind of what I believe is showing this distinction between classes and how it doesn't matter. Um, right. But they had to flat out, tell us with Catherine Hepburn's lines about how George is from the so-called lower class and Dexter from the so-called upper and I'll just take whatever and that um it was a little pat and if you can't show us did you really achieve the message that you wanted (laughs) right well and I don't mind them necessarily telling us but you know if, if the thesis of the movie is you know class doesn't matter we're all human rich people want love you know we, they don't want to be worshipped they want the same thing we all do they just have a nicer house to do it in <laughs> but you know like also they have i think there's like the the part where jimmy stewart and Catherine hepburn are talking and they basically talk about like well everybody just wants a roof and food and then it cuts to the swimming pool and 
you're like, oh, okay, like there's their roof and their food. It's just nicer than ours. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still I'm still not sold on like Catherine Hepburn is just one of us. Yeah. You know? well, like she's in, in a way she retains like her goddess stature. She's, she becomes less of a, a bronze statue, as they call her towards the end. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she, she's still just upper level. Yeah, she ends up with Dexter. <laughs> like, yeah. That is the, I think, telling that she is still very firmly seated in high, the upper class of Philadelphia. And I'm kind of okay with that, though, just because I think Dexter ironically represents, like, the best of high class because he, as I mentioned, he openly doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there when his ex-wife is getting married the next day, mm-hmm. but he does love her and the family enough that he will sacrifice his well-being, his emotional well-being for their reputation. And so, you know, he he is the right guy. He's kind of a bad boy. He's kind of um the black sheep. himself upon the family. <laughs> yeah. But and, and yeah, that's that's what it makes him endearing to, you know, lower classes is that um he has a respect for for the veneer, but he also will shatter it to preserve like the big picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, it, the status quo is definitely maintained, and I don't want to rail on that too much because I love plenty of screwball comedies that do the exact same thing. Like that's that's <laughs> kind of just a what you tackle when you get into this era of movie making. Right, right. Well, I think you know we've been talking a decent long time. Overall, I, I hope that we still have enough positive to say about the movie because everything I have against it, I think I think is really minor. They they do stack up to not make it a must see movie for me, but I think the movie's incredibly worthwhile completely echo those comments and really i found it to be very enjoyable to watch (laughs) and we'll continue to watch it on a semi-regular basis yeah absolutely it's you know to me a lot of like you know just the back of the the dvd and stuff is you know it's the ultimate um you know screwball comedy or the climax of you know the the superstar age of golden hollywood you know it's not quite there for me but i very much see how people could construe it that way and again you know i think for as much as we've talked about like sometimes the pacing's off sometimes it's overly talky i think on the flip side of that we often wish more modern day movies had the wit and the pacing of the philadelphia story completely agree and honestly i will take every single flaw from the philadelphia story just to get the wit so oh yeah very worthwhile Okay, so hopefully that sells people who haven't seen it but have listened to 40 minutes of a spoiler-filled discussion. (laughs) Um, Still, remember, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. So there's plenty that we just can't mention at all, so worth a watch um, if, if that's your type of movie. Yeah, absolutely. And and we always miss something. You know, 40 minutes is not enough to talk about these movies. So when listeners are casting their votes on if it deserves to be a must-see movie, Hit us up on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you are. We want to hear what you think about the movie, why it's worthwhile, or maybe why it's not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't like this movie as much as we do even. Um, yeah, we want to hear all viewpoints. But kind of kind of the nice thing is um, we still get to wrestle with the story a little bit. We just do it in a bit of a different platform. So why don't you and I switch over to talking about high society? Sounds good. Would I trade places with Miss Tracy Lord for all her wealth and beauty? <laughs> just ask me. All right, I will. When you trade places with Miss Tracy Lord for all of her wealth and her beauty... Well, you know, I can't help thinking about it. (laughs) Who wants to be a millionaire? I don't. Have flashy flunkies everywhere? I don't. Who wants the bother of a country estate? A country estate? 
is something I'd hate. Who wants to wallow in champagne? I don't. Who wants a supersonic plane? I don't. Who wants a private landing field too? Wait, I don't. And I don't, cause, cause all I, I want is you. All right, so this is going to be fun because we still get to talk about the same story just um, through the lens of a musical with a different cast. And uh, I think we should start with the cast because I think along with High Society being a musical, the other big draw is that it's still a completely starstruck casting call. We have, we're replacing Audrey or Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, and Cary Grant, but we get Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly, and Frank Sinatra. So still pretty big names, but Ian, your first point why this is a movie you wouldn't recommend to anybody is that those leads fall flat in their roles, which I agree with, but I think is still kind of surprising when you look at, you know, the front of the box and you see those three names. Yeah. So I I think for me, if we want to just like run down the characters, um, what I loved about, okay, I I apologize to everybody. I'm probably going to be referencing Philadelphia story a whole bunch because it's for me kind of impossible to talk about high society without the context of Philadelphia story. Um, Perfectly fine. But uh, Grace Kelly's performance for me just lacked the subtlety and the kind of different I guess, transitions from emotion to emotion that we saw in Catherine Hepburn's performance. So um, immediately I noticed that uh, Kelly is trying to kind of put on the same sort of affect, but she kind of like falls in and out of it. And then I didn't see as much, um, I guess, compassion for her family, especially like Carolyn, who is the analog to Dinah. Yeah. Um, so immediately I, I, I just didn't have as much love for her character. Um, and I'm some of that, I definitely was writing, but a lot of it was performance. Um, and like to go like way far into the film to the scene where, um, they're rehashing all that went down between Mike and Tracy. Um, when, Grace Kelly makes that transition from being really relieved that nothing happened between her and Mike to being indignant that she wasn't, you know, pretty enough or attractive enough or um, I'm trying to remember that line, but um, you're too good for me, basically. Exactly. Well, and that that pivot, it wasn't as effective for me. And I'm, I'm really struggling to put like my finger on exactly why. But the the transitions and emotion just weren't there for me. No, I, f- I feel the exact same way about that moment because it's it's word for word what happens in Philadelphia's story. Like Catherine Hepburn says those exact same lines, but in this movie, when it happens, it feels like such a defeat. It feels like Tracy Lord's spirit has been conquered. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, it really leaves a, a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, did, did you have more on Grace you wanted to talk? Just that I'm with you that I... I think this is a a writing thing, but you know, I don't want to say like the performance isn't blase, but I also think um, where they choose to borrow from the original play and the the original movie and where they kind of choose to deviate, I think they make all the wrong decisions. And with the character of Tracy, it's most prevalent because Mm -hmm. of things like that, because, you know, she seems so inconquerable in the original. And I really understand this casting. I think this is smart casting because Grace Kelly is an incredibly elegant woman. She's very strong-willed. Um, this was her last movie before she went to be the Princess of Monaco. This is her last film role. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there's a part of me that's like, 
she doesn't give a great performance, but I'm also so let down with what she's given to do and how they shoot her because I think those things could have propped her performance up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think it all comes down to Grace Kelly lacks the moxie that Catherine Hepburn brought. So yeah, that that's the best way I can think to sum it up. Yeah, which is still just so interesting to me because I think she's capable of doing it. I just don't know why not here. Maybe it's because she was engaged to the Prince of Morocco, I know, at the time, <laughs> because the the ring she's wearing in high society is her actual engagement oh, ring. Oh, so, really? You know, I've, I've kind of wondered, like, if she's kind of just, like, phoning it in a mm-hmm. little bit because um, she's about to go be a princess. Well, who wouldn't? I might phone it in, too, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I, I definitely would. So I guess pivoting to... Uh, the role of Mike, who was played... Wait. Oh, I've got thoughts on Mike. <laughs> yeah, Mike was played by Frank Sinatra in High Society, uh, Jimmy Stewart in Philadelphia Story. And for me, I think this was a casting issue. Like, both... I personally think that both Bing and Frank were miscast. Like, I honestly would have preferred them switch roles. <laughs> um, Maybe. I'm... <laughs> I'm going to be a little too simplistic here. I think both of these guys are too old to be in this movie. Oh, agree with you there. That was my immediate thought because the, the quality of the, the picture is much better. And so it's like, oh, geez, how old yeah. are these guys? And how old is Grace <laughs> Kelly in this? Which not the first time that this has happened. I mean, I know. For sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, I've had this same because I'm like, I'm such a freaking hypocrite because I love her and Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. I think they're a fantastic couple. He is openly way too old for her <laughs> in Rear Window. But, um, you know, that's a Hitchcock movie. And it, I think that's like one of the best directed movies ever. So he makes it work. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Walters, who I believe directs High Society. I'm sure a very capable guy, but he does not have the forte to make this work. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, and then even with that, I didn't like their performances. So if we, we start with Mike or Frank Sinatra's performance, um, he, to me, felt a little too malicious in all of the humor he was trying to bring. So interesting. when we had the scene in the South Parlor, <laughs> um, it's like he was mocking to a point of being mean at least that's how it felt for me so the gag with the phone was much more serious in my mind than when jimmy stewart did it in the philadelphia story and so that didn't didn't really work for me and i think he was also handicapped by the fact they cut out a bunch of the character development between or the development of his relationship with tracy grace kelly in this film so again handicapped on the the writing and story a little bit but also just kind of (laughs) mean yeah no his his character is definitely the most damaged in this transition because like we talked about in philadelphia's story his arc in the original is that he's this self-righteous hypocrite who just instantly falls in love with these rich he so vehemently despises like he he becomes starstruck at the drop of a hat Mm -hmm. And here I felt like he has the one line, like, they couldn't pay me to live in this house. And then he's, I felt like he was perfectly polite to everybody's face the rest of the time. Yes. And then all this, and then all of a sudden we have, oh, that glorious scene where Tracy wins him over by showing him the abandoned houses that were seized for tax money. Those poor, poor rich people. (laughs) Well, and that's where this was a 
writing and switch that they made that totally didn't work. Bind, bonding over Mike's book in the Philadelphia story, I thought was very effective because that's like bonding yes. over ideas. Yes. And this showing him you, all the show CK houses. Dexter, you have unexpected depth. Exactly. Um, just talking about rich people's boarded up houses doesn't have that emotional depth to it. Can I, can I also tell you actually like the thing that bothers me most about Mike in this, in high society? Yeah. During the, who wants to be a millionaire song, he and Liz sing and dance together. And the, the, the end of the chorus is all I want is you. Isn't the point of the Mike Liz relationship that their mutual affection is unspoken. What is holding up their hookup? If they sing and dance together about how all they want is each other. Oh, I am with you on that. And I think I think my brain filled in some of the the story cuz that didn't hit me until you really just said it. <laughs> but no, that's tremendously inconsistent and that's one thing that I'm usually a really big stickler for is internal consistency within within a film. That just bothered me. I don't think I saw like the next 5 minutes of the movie after that because I was just so caught up in like musical shorthand is if you share a song and dance with someone of the opposite sex, you're in love. <laughs> So why? <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> Anyways, it, that one feels nitpicky. I I think again, all of this stuff about he just gets stuff cut out, and he kind of gets a little too fast tracked into falling in love with Tracy. Mm-hmm. I, I it's funny. I hadn't read his lines as like overly malicious, but to me, Sinatra kind of also seemed to be phoning it in. Mm-hmm. Like he to me, he didn't have the acidity that Jimmy Stewart does when he's doing the prank phone call. And it's funny, you know. I would say Stewart's delivery of those lines probably feels more vicious to me but it's maybe so cartoonish and over the top that it's kind of more fun yeah definitely and and sinatra sinatra i think is just so deadpan all the time right and i could be projecting a little bit i think frank sinatra looks a little slimy in this movie so i could just be you know projecting that feeling onto onto his character but um yeah he didn't bring it so how about uh bing crosby as ck dexter uh this one kills me because I really do like Bing Crosby, but I think he was too nice for this part. Yes. Thank you. Like Bing represents just like all that is good in the world with that gorgeous voice and is to me just like such a good person, at least in his persona that we see um, that all of his barbs just don't land on Tracy in my mind. Um, And that, kind of ruins his character in the film for me i think it also ruins the idea that you're supposed to root for he and tracy to get back together because because like we were talking about in philadelphia's story Cary grant kind of has to come around to the idea that he wants tracy back Mm -hmm. he's more in he's more into it up front to just save the family from the story about her dad but here you know he's just a swell guy he's opening his house to the jazz festival he openly loves tracy and and this whole thing is explicitly a plan to get back together with Tracy. And by doing that, you not only lose like the tension of like them butting heads, it also just means Dexter's a swell guy and Tracy is just an awful person who told this perfect adoring gentleman to get out of her life. (laughs) So he has none of that bad boy attitude and she has no reason to not take him back immediately. Right. And I think that also handicaps Tracy in this film because now we are 
kind of primed to not like her as much because <laughs> why wouldn't she be with this really great guy um, exactly he didn't hit her like uh Cary grant hit katherine hepburn yeah exactly so the the mains definitely or lead characters definitely didn't bring it and it's just so funny how that one change with dexter i think just com- has this domino effect that completely saps all the thematic weight out of the story because rather than it being you know these flawed characters kind of peeling back the layers to get at, you know, their shared vulnerability. High society now just feels like we're coasting until everything finally clicks for Tracy, that Tracy realizes she's the worst person and she belongs with Dexter. Right. Right. And, you know, I'd be down for that in a, in a musical. Um, if the musical numbers were better. <laughs> well, and it's for me, it's not that the musical numbers were bad per se but i i totally agree with you when you um say that the musical numbers are kind of non sequiturs <laughs> yeah um do you have a favorite number um i think my favorite number if it were to stand alone is the all i want is you in terms of like the comedy and the performance that the the both liz and um mike gave or frank oh, okay. uh, like yeah that one um who who wants to be a millionaire oh is that what the song is called yeah, okay it's called yeah awesome yes who wants to be a millionaire um that i enjoyed the most now i still don't think it fit with the film <laughs> yeah it it definitely fits best i think yeah i i would agree i wish it had been maybe true love different oh but see okay which true love was that the one with Di- uh carolyn um, that's the flashback to the honeymoon on on the boat, the true love. It's it's Bing Crosby and okay, Kelly okay. serenading. Yeah, I I agree that true. Well, I think true love fit the best. <laughs> yeah, it it's a flashback sequence. It, it works, but yeah, who wants to be a millionaire seems to have something to say about you know the class distinctions and stuff. Um, again, the message is very muddled because the point of that song is I don't need money, I just need you. Sung between two characters who. The whole point is that they don't tell each other how they feel about each other. <laughs> exactly. So, like I said, by itself, I love it. In the film, I don't. I know that's, that one's a favorite. I'm always a little disappointed with it because um, I think there needs to be more. Because it also, I think, is the most visually interesting set piece that it's them weaving their way through this room full of lavish wedding presents. And, you know, so much of which is overkill. And there's, there's one thing that a, a point the movie makes is that nobody really knows exactly what it is. I can't even describe it. It's like that silver blow dryer looking thing. If it's to ash your cigar in, that was the Ooh, only maybe. thing that I could think that might be. If anybody knows what that's actually for, you should um, hit us up on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely curious. But yeah, I, I I feel like as much as they do, you know, they're kind of like twirling around with the stuff. I almost want that number to be a little more chaotic because again, if these characters disdain the extravagant lifestyle of these people. I kind of want to see them mess with their stuff a little bit. I, I want that number to be a little more chaotic. I yeah. Think. And like that, that maybe may be a dominoes. very, <laughs> yeah, that may be like a very specific complaint, but to me, there's like thematic potential there that like, they just don't take advantage of. Well, story of the whole film, right? <laughs> right. I would say my favorite number is probably, is it what a swell party this is? And that's the one with the that had uh, Louis Armstrong in it. No, that is Bing Crosby and Frank Frank Sinatra. It's yes. right after. Um, I do like. I think that one with Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby is called "You Has Jazz." 
which would also be in the running for my favorite, which is very ironic because if we want to talk about numbers that stop the movie cold, that's the worst that offender. Crack, that <laughs> probably opens with Bing Crosby saying like, hold everything. Here's Louis Armstrong for five minutes. <laughs> and it's great because <laughs> it's Louis Armstrong. But still doesn't doesn't fit. So no, definitely think your criticism is well-deserved on this film. I think I'm very bitter because um, I, I think a, a point the essay on the movie in A Thousand and One Movies makes mm-hmm. is how flawlessly the musical numbers are integrated. And I oh, disagree. I, I don't know how <laughs> they, they got there. So that, that makes me think like I really must be missing something like am I just being too bitter? Um, but I love musicals. I love musicals from this era. And I think this is one of the worst ones. <laughs> um, I mean, also just weird. Bing Crosby singing a song to like a 13-year-old girl okay. in the beginning. That So in addition to Father Lord's speech, which is icky, this was also really icky. <laughs> it's like, okay, not only are you too old for Grace Kelly, you're really too old for, for Carolyn. <laughs> Um, and then that I consider us engaged line at the end. I'm like, oh, uh, I, I know it's being, but can we not play into this? Because <laughs> in, in the Philadelphia story, when Cary Grant says like, Dinah, my perfect girl or whatever he says, it's a cute line. And it kind of shows like the relationship these two char- characters have that Dinah adores Dexter. She worships him. She knows he's the one who should be with Tracy. Right. What, what's going on here in high society? They took it way too far. Definitely. Well, and what what kind of kills me is um, every so often uh, Louis Armstrong will have the kind of interspersed lines to explain what's going on, which <laughs> yeah. from from a like narrative standpoint, I think was a little much like, yes, do you really have to hit me over the head with just what just happened? Um, yeah. But right in that song, wrong girl. Exactly. And it's like, ooh, really wrong girl. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. The other one, I was going to ask you, did making love mean something different in the 50s? Because Frank Sinatra has an entire number where he's slow dancing with Grace Kelly and the song is titled Mind If I Make Love to You. Yes, at the pool. And I didn't catch that on the first watch through, but when I went back and and saw it again, I was thinking to myself that that would have been extremely controversial in the 50s. So I'm going to venture a guess and say it did mean something different, but again, don't know for sure. And maybe it would fit because that's supposed to be a shocking moment that, you know, they were at the pool together and insinuations are made. They have slept together. So that works for an audience, but um, to sing it to the character, there is not some good in-world logic because um, <laughs> yes. she, she she's offended at the vulgar words chaste and virginal. I don't think she'd be cool with a dude singing mind if I make love to you. <laughs> well, but as a counterpoint to that, this is post drunk Tracy. <laughs> so okay, after true. she's been like torn down to nothing. So I, maybe it was designed to heighten that effect, but I'm, I'm not maybe. convinced that was deliberate. Yeah. I'm not going to get too hung up on it because it was a whatever song. Um, <laughs> oh, as as many of them were. Um, yeah, there's there's no earworms in this one. Maybe the first one, the, the high society song that Louis Armstrong and the band are singing in the bus. That's kind of a fun calypso. Yeah, I did enjoy that. I would say now from uh, how effective that was in the story, though, I really preferred the flashback that... 
Oh, yes. Philadelphia yes. story did. Because just having somebody sing to you about the history of what's happened doesn't give me any view into how these characters act or behave or what they want and believe. And that, that's kind of because this is supposed to be focused on the characters right. and how they evolve. It is much less effective. Right. Great for a stage musical, but... <laughs> for, for a movie that opens with a helicopter shot that shows like we have money you know let's let's try to tell some visual stuff here guys exactly exactly um were there any other musical numbers you want to talk about i would say i didn't find it so believable how tracy could hear all of the musical numbers happening in dexter's house <laughs> so this happened twice first at the very beginning and then when he is singing the song about uh, Tracy, I love you just before the, as she puts it, her bachelor party. Um, and there's this scene with Grace Kelly in uh, her bedroom where she kind of, I presume looks out a window I, that I think we're made to believe it's a window um, right. kind of longingly into the night where supposedly, I think we're supposed to believe she can hear being singing that he loves her. And um, that was another number that I think kind of came out of left field and it was just like, okay, glad you again beat us over the head with his love for Tracy. <laughs> yep, and and what a terrible person she is for not returning it. Exactly. So speaking of which, a point you made is that um, this has some antiquated musings on relationships, and they age poorly despite being a more modern movie. So what's what's grinding your gears on that front? Oh. I agree. <laughs> so I I think all of you the same complaints that we had from Philadelphia story still exist here. And I mean, they lifted the the speech that Tracy's father gives to her about how it's her fault that he's having an affair, almost if not completely verbatim from the Philadelphia story. And so I found it extremely uncomfortable to see how Mother Lord just continued to not react, even though we're supposedly 15 years later. And um, <laughs> it just magnified how that part doesn't age well and maybe for the time audiences felt differently but i'm i'm definitely not liking that there and um i think some of this also comes down to the fact that i didn't like grace kelly's performance so seeing her reaction to all of this stuff just just didn't work for me yeah so so it's kind of all the stuff we've talked about with Tracy and the problems with not having somebody as powerful as Catherine Hepburn in the role. Exactly. So it's kind of like, instead of you being somebody who has very high standards for everybody, it's more like she has unreasonable standards and is kind of pouty about it. At least that's, <laughs> yeah, she that's kind of how I saw it. She comes off a lot more spoiled on this one. You're right. Yes. And that, that, ooh. And isn't that so interesting that we're saying a lot of this stuff exists in the Philadelphia story, but with a certain, you know, veneer, a fresh coat of paint, you can, you can actually cover up a lot of problematic issues. But when you strip that away, all of a sudden we're just vehemently against this movie. Definitely. And I, it really comes down to the, the performance for me and that, yeah. <laughs> so, so how about the writing? Cause another one of your point is that in some ways it borrows too much and then it borrows too little from the original. So, I know we talked a lot about the writing in Philadelphia story and how they used some really great techniques with repetition and these different uh, 
self-referential humor bits. Um, High Society tried to bring some of these really great one-liners. Like the one that I remember is uh, a woman should behave herself naturally. Um, yeah. In great the Phil- ex- Loved it in the Philadelphia story, at least, where it was repeated a couple times and we had built up um, how this shows the difference in opinion that Dexter has um, versus... Oh, geez. It's telling that I cannot remember her husband, Kittredge, George, <laughs> George Kittredge. George Kittredge. Yes. Um, it, that really showed the difference in Kittredge's and uh, Dexter's opinion on how women should behave. But in this film, it's like a throwaway line that Bing says the morning after the party. <laughs> and so that's emblematic of this. They tried to borrow something, but you didn't borrow enough of the context for it to have the same impact. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, it's, it's also tough because, you know, like you said, because Bing Crosby is such a nice guy in high society <laughs> for him to just be sitting on the couch and like snarkily, you know, reacting to this argument that Tracy and George are having is just like, it's completely out of left field. When Cary Grant does it, it's like, yeah, of course, Cary Grant's going to do that. He's the good guy. Yeah, totally makes sense. Well, and in that same scene, we have the mention of Carolyn's dream. So Carolyn is that, again, the analog for Dinah in the uh, Philadelphia story, we get very clear pictures of Dinah overhearing and talking about this dream. Whereas in high society, they simply mention it and are like, oh, go ask Carolyn about her dream. And that is so much less effective than when you had Dinah in there actually talking about it and that we're able to play Dinah and um, Tracy off one another. So that, that was just a, such a huge missed opportunity where they use the same, uh, I guess, narrative technique, but without the actual character. Yeah. And, and boy, the little sister role is, um, is just a bit here because I loved in Philadelphia story that Dinah is so wise. Like uh, she has that great line where she says, I can tell something's going on because I'm being dragged away. Oh, she had great lines. <laughs> yeah, she she know every she had her finger on the pulse of everything that was going on. And um, here, you know, I think she is basically in the movie to still do the the ballerina thing and the, to do the talking about smallpox in mm-hmm. French. Um, but yeah, like, the supporting cast completely stripped away in high society. Like, and it's none such of a shame. Because <laughs> they're good characters. Com- yeah, I agree. Even even Uncle Uncle Willie. <sighs> He's just so skeezy in high society. Like in, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia story, it's the same character, right? He's still pinching women on their bums, and, you know, being a, a pervert. But there's something kind of charming. And I think that also stems from Ruth Hussey, you know, not being one to suffer fools as Liz. You know, she, you, you feel OK that she's going to hold her ground. But um, nothing against Celeste Holm in high society who plays the role of Liz. But um, I just feel bad for her. She, oh, she feels... Yeah. Like, she's not going to be able to to handle that. Well, and I don't think she was given nearly as good a material. And that that's no. really the shame. Because I, I could see moment to moment when she had the same snark and wittiness, especially when she and um, Dexter leave the party. And she's like, oh, that's the nicest thing that anybody said all night. Like, that sort of delivery is quintessential Liz. But she only got like two lines. <laughs> yeah, they they really got a, uh, a lot of her good stuff. So again, not borrowing enough from the original. <laughs> so here's a question I have because we're comparing the two a lot. Obviously, is is only natural. Do you think high society would work better if you had seen it before Philadelphia Story? 
uh, this is, I have a hard time actually figuring out how I feel about this movie without Philadelphia Story. I I think it would be less bad, if that makes sense. But I, I'm not really convinced that it would have been great. <laughs> sure. Because, you know, when you see it after, I feel all you can do is see the ways in which Philadelphia Story is better. But I would worry that if you saw High Society first, maybe it would be a little more charming, but it might make Philadelphia Story worse after you see it because all of the worst traits of these characters would be what you would see when you went to watch Philadelphia Story. Yeah, and that's... Well, it's a shame. So I I don't know. I would recommend watching Philadelphia Story first if you by chance haven't seen both of them. Yeah. Um but yeah, I think High Society just has so many like structural flaws to it in the story that it still wouldn't stand alone very well. And I think that's also just that I again, I think it's such an unimaginative musical and the way it's shot drives me crazy. Um that was my my third point. I think yeah. I called it stiff and uninteresting. Would it kill this movie to use some medium shots and close-ups? <laughs> I did notice that because the Philadelphia story was so good at varying that up and showing the reactions in different parts um, that we really wanted to see on like Jimmy and Carrie and Catherine's faces. And I wonder if some of that is, as, as you said, picture is better. We're in color. We already have actors or leading male actors who are older than their characters are supposed to be. So let's not get too close up on the makeup is maybe the rationale. Um, well, I would I, hope that wasn't the reason, but I, you know, I'm, I'm very cynical. I, I think another reason is it might be trying to replicate seeing the story on the stage because it's all very wide. It's kind of trying to show off the lavish sets and the house, but then why make a movie of it? Yeah. You know, like, like you say, Philadelphia story uses, the art of cinema to get in closer, to get us things we can't get on the stage. And here it's just constantly pulled back. You can't see people's reactions to each other. And they're not even doing anything with that space because while this is a musical, hardly anybody dances. So why, you know, why have these just gigantic things unless you're just making a commentary on, you know, the extravagance of the upper class, which Philadelphia Story does better by not really calling attention to it, by mm -hmm. making that an environment in which these characters interact, not the star itself. Right. And it's like the the casual and almost blasé attitude they take toward the the high class in Philadelphia story. Definitely agree that that amplifies it <laughs> yeah. or at least makes the story a little bit more relatable in some ways. Um, so I don't know, made it very much about the people, not about the setting. Right. And that's I think that's a trap a lot of. You know, I, I see the pressure this movie's under because Philadelphia Story was a hit in its time. So it wasn't like they were remaking like this lost gem from 15 years ago. People knew the Philadelphia Story. So what's their appeal? Well, we also have three huge stars. Uh, it's going to be in color. It's going to be a musical. I can see the pressure they would be to try to differentiate themselves. Mm -hmm. I just feel like every choice they made is the wrong choice, which maybe is less their fault and points more towards how Philadelphia Story makes so many right choices. Yeah. I, it's it's weird, you know, to to feel bad for a movie, but that's kind of the name of the game with remakes. Like you say, is <laughs> you you got to be different enough, but you know, people are still there to see the story. And to me, it just raises the question: like, well, why remake it? What does it doesn't bring what anything does it new? Yeah. yeah. And again, I I see the potential for you know, if we make it a musical, then it is different. But 
Well, we already talked about how flat it falls in that regard. And then mm-hmm. to back that up, the performances aren't that great either. Yeah. And I'm honestly thinking to myself that maybe this didn't need to be made into a musical. Because when I think about musicals from like the middle of the 20th century, I think about like Showboat and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and these really big, large cast, big number sort of films that do a really good job of integrating gigantic casts with really impressive looking dance and musical numbers. Whereas because this story is so focused on a very small cast and a very select few people, I'm honestly not sure that the musical like format for them works. And it could, you know, they, they try to do that. Like I said, it's not an extravagant, like dancing musical. Most of the numbers are just two people kind of crooning to each other, but there's even still a way to do that. Interestingly. We just talked about Singing in the Rain, which we've pointed out is often just a musical with two or three people, but feels so vibrant and alive, and you get character interactions through that. And here it's just Sinatra singing to Celeste Holmes, Sinatra <laughs> singing to Bing Crosby, Bing Crosby singing to a 13-year-old girl. Like, Great. There's no energy to it. And I, I've, on rec- I've been on record on this show. Is it, It's a potential weakness of mine that I like my musicals more energetic. I don't appreciate the subdued ones as much as everybody else so that might just be me oh no i'm with you on that i i think for me musicals should be designed to be like large and energetic and dramatic right even if there are some you know slower ballads that are woven in so like when i think of things like fiddler on the roof where you have the the more contemplative pieces like far from the home i love and things like that it's it's good because you get that contrast, but here we didn't get that contrast. No, that's a really good point. Uh, uh. I know. It's just, it's such a shame. <laughs> I know. I, I, again, you know, I didn't like this movie the first time I watched it, but I really wanted to give it a second chance. But I, it was probably a mistake to watch it the night after I watched Philadelphia Story because then all I could see was like, they changed this. That's a horrible decision. Like, it, <laughs> it bothers me to no end that we remove the subplot that the Lord's no Mike and Liz are reporters, but the reporters don't know they know. Because the point of that is not like, oh, when is, you know, the curtain going to be lifted? We know the jig's going to be up. But like you said, that lends kind of a sense of tension to that scene where Tracy is interrogating them. You know, there, there's kind of that double facade that's going on that the the reporters who are so hoity-toity and are like, oh, the, the fakery of the upper class, well, they're the ones who are operating under a false identity. Mm-hmm. You know, now we lose that because they come to the house and, um, you know, oh, they're reporters. Whatever. Yeah. And that, as you, as you put it before, removes a lot of tension with Dexter as well. So it's uh, the whole idea that Dexter is putting aside all of the facade to save the Lord family face. Um, that's completely gone in this film. <laughs> yeah, so, which is weird because um, that's his whole MO is she's a nice guy. Exactly. So, I, yeah, that. That needed to be in there, I thought. Now, I, I will say, not to backtrack too much, but in the Philadelphia story, the just casual acceptance that these two people were just random friends of the brother, like, <laughs> that was that was a little unbelievable to me, so maybe that's a, a flaw that we should have mentioned. So I guess from a believability standpoint, this was more there, but from a uh, like narrative standpoint, definitely didn't like it as much. Well, maybe to make the case for why they sh- high society shouldn't have removed that subplot is Tracy does not believe that ruse. She's like, <laughs> come on, Dexter. You expect me to believe like my brother didn't come, but he sent two buddies. 
Um, yeah, and like that tells us that. something about Tracy that makes her seem intelligent, and you know she's not one to suffer fools. Exactly, not just somebody who is pouting. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, and again, Tracy in high society is just stuck up. Exactly, and so. she just needs to come around. Yeah, um, I don't think it should be in the book. I definitely don't think. I, I mean, I'm. I would be. I'm so interested to see just the comments and the votes for this one. I'm really hoping that some people have actually seen it. I worry that some um, people will come to the polls, they'll vote for Philadelphia story, but not have seen high society. Yeah. Cause I, I really do with, with movies like this want to see like, what am I missing? Like, why does the charm not work on me? Cause I've tried and it just, you know, it's not working. <laughs> well, maybe it's not a fault with you. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe. But... We'll, we'll see all, all that to say, like, I'm just very excited to see how the votes go for it. I hope there's some comments. Um, whether they agree with me or don't, I, I really just want to get a better feel for like what public opinion of this movie really is. Definitely. And if, I mean, knowing additional context about it would also be super helpful. So, um, yeah, I'd just like to know like what MGM was thinking. <laughs> Money. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, probably. And, and also a testament, you know, we, we today are bemoaning like there's no more original movies. We're just remaking the same crap. Well, you know, Here's a 1956 movie remaking a 1940 movie. Um, so it's it's not such a nude trend. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, sometimes remakes are done really well. Sometimes. Sometimes. But I, I would argue they're done really well when the original movie wasn't that good to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> Fix all the flaws instead of trying to reinterpret. Well, I, I don't know. Like, what, what would you say is, like, the best um, remake? Oh, I'm trying to think now. It's it's hard because I'm with you. I'm like, there's a couple, but when you have to name one, it gets difficult. I may honestly, I may have to get back to you and like tweet at you what I've come up with when I finally Please. have a chance to think through it. Please do. We'll we'll put that in our our rotation on social media this week. We'll ask everybody what like the best remake is because um, I have to think about it myself. So for you and me, it's definitely not high society. But um, hey, those are just two opinions. Again, we are now turning this over to listeners. You are the ones who are going to decide if the Philadelphia story and or high society are going to be considered absolute must-see movies. So make sure that you head over to cinemas.com before March 24th to cast your vote on if you think these movies should be seen or not. I'm, again, just so excited to see how this one goes. Maybe high society is going to make cinemust. Maybe there's an untapped fandom out there that um, heard this and is losing their minds. Well, I love to be told when I'm wrong. <laughs> yes so please do if if you love this movie i want to hear about it well is there anything else you'd like to say about it ian um no i think i'm all good again philadelphia story i would ultimately recommend it even if it's not a cinemust um, but high society i don't think it's worth folks's time i am with you so um yeah we will find out what the folks think now because we are gonna we open it up now for the two-week voting period, and I am so excited to see where it goes. Oh, me too. So we will wrap that discussion up. We hope that everybody enjoyed the show. Again, please make sure you go to episode 36 posts at cinemus.com to cast your vote on the must-see status of these movies. We are going to reveal the results of that poll on our next episode on March 26th which will uh, actually tackle this very same pairing of an original and a remake because Ezra Smith is going to be joining us to discuss The Jungle Book, both the 1967 Disney animated classic and its 2016 quote-unquote live-action remake. Uh, so that should be very interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to tune in for that one. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts on them. 
So yeah, thank you so much everybody for listening. And one last favor I would have to ask is that if you are listening to us on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it if you took a few moments to rate and review us. Uh, It helps our show gain more visibility, but more importantly, we get to see what you think of the show and what we can do to improve it. And if you're not on iTunes, I'd love your feedback just as much. You can reach out to us on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages, or just shoot us an email at cinemusts at gmail.com. Ian, I cannot thank you enough for a fantastic discussion of um, a a true classic and its somewhat lackluster remake. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed talking through them. And I can't wait to to keep following the Best Pictures podcast. You're making your way through the 40s. Um, Again, where can people find the Best Pictures podcast? Yeah, so we are on Twitter and Instagram at Best Pictures Pod. Um, And again, feel free to look us up on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. It's a fantastic show. So everybody, please go follow those tags. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. No, my pleasure, man. Well, um, with that, we will close it. We will see everybody in two weeks. Do not forget to vote on the must-see status of the Philadelphia story in high society. But um, in the meantime, how about you just go grab yourself another bottle of champagne? <laughs> <laughs>